Hey, Stephen. Um, how's it Hi. going? Sorry about that. I'm new to the app, so my my fault there. No, no, no worries. It, there's always a little bit of a, a little bit of a tussle there, <laughs> kicking the uh, kicking the room off. Um, thanks for joining us. I know this is totally last. We're breaking every protocol here, Stephen. Uh, typically, these shows are set up several weeks in advance, and I plug them in the whole thing. And not only that, I typically intentionally don't go after like hot button issues because. Unlike uh, people like Glenn Greenwald, who I debated last week, I don't love getting in the middle of culture war issues, but this seems to be like an important issue. And I know you've written about this a lot, and I also have some thoughts because I've been, you know, I have some background with guns as well. Um, so with that Certainly. preface, thanks for, thanks for joining. I do want to plug who you are and what you do. You have, you're an author of uh, The Reload, which is a, a great name for a Substack, by the way, um, and which, which is available on Substack as his pull request. And you write kind of broadly on gun issues in the United States, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. I, I'm founder of TheReload.com, uh, which is a publication that focuses on sober, serious firearms journalism. So we, we do original reporting and analysis on uh, mainly uh, gun politics at the national level. But, you know, we cover all sorts of things, gun culture, uh, you know, the gun business, um, and, and certainly, uh, there's been quite a lot going on this week. Uh, there was already set to be a very busy week with the NRA convention and, and, um, the ATF director hearing, but now of course we've just experienced one of the worst mass shootings in, in American history. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, just as one comment, I think gun policy is one of these areas that needs real journalism. And I think it's so polarizing and, and it's also a somewhat complex technically issue that I think we don't get a lot, a lot of good gun journalism. So thanks for doing that. And as you said, just to reiterate, it's just, uh, it's an incredible tragedy. It's kind of overwhelming. Um, I, I assume you have children, Stephen, or, or, or I don't know if you do, but do you have uh, kids? No, I don't have any children, but I certainly have, um, you know, nieces and nephews that I sure. care deeply for. Sure. Now, I was just going to comment. Once you have, you know, once you have children, the thought of harm coming, or if you have nieces and nephews, as you do, you know, once you have a real, a real relationship with children, the thought of harm coming to them uh, seems so repellent. It's something your mind doesn't even want to contemplate. Um, and I was noting, as you know, as as it goes these days, there, you know, people were sharing photos of the children who were murdered, and it's just, you know, some of them are like my kids' age, which. Um, not to say that that makes it more tragic, but it, it just, it, it, yeah, the, the thought of anything happening that to any of my children is just overwhelming. It's something I don't really want to think about, but, um, it, it does raise the issue of, of gun policy and where we are. And it's just, it's one of these areas where I think, I mean, just, just to take a totally non-controversial parallel topic, like abortion, for example, I think it's an area where, um, for some reason, the public, if you look at poll data, I was reading some poll data that people were, quote, were citing today uh, around either gun policy or abortion, you'll find that the average American tends to not be an extremist, tends to be somewhat centrist. Um, the, the reality of public opinion is, is neither the polarization you see on Twitter nor often um, what you see encoded in law. One of the things I mentioned, again, just riffing off the abortion theme, I, I, I made an oblique tweet about it. Um, the views of Americans and Europeans on abortion, for example, actually aren't that divergent. For some reason, a lot of Americans seem to think that European abortion policy, for example, is way freer than it is in the U.S. It's actually not true. It's actually often more restricted than the United States. But the key thing is that the views in Europe and the United States are actually not that dissimilar. But in Europe, somehow that 
that public view becomes encoded in law, right? Somehow public policy and law converge to that opinion. And that's, that's not been the case in the United States. And then again, getting back to guns, that, seem, that also seems to not be the case um, with guns. And um, anyhow, I, you know, I wouldn't expect us to solve all of American politics in this conversation. But I, I'm just curious. I mean, that's my, that's my initial take on this problem. I'm sure you probably, you probably have uh, a more informed one as well. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I think there's probably a lot of truth to the idea that, uh, you know, online spaces where you talk about politics tend to be much more polarized than general public opinion, because online spaces where people are talking about politics, you're generally getting a sampling of political activists, right? People who, who are deeply engaged with the issues and have very strong beliefs on them, Where whereas uh, the general public is not uh, perhaps paying as close attention to the ins and outs and everyday developments and uh, does not necessarily hold the same level of uh, strong opinions. Um, uh, of course, that all plays out uh, uh, in distinct ways when it comes to uh, voting as well, too. You know, what, what an opinion poll tells you about a certain policy does not necessarily equate to how that policy is going to drive voting, right? Right. I mean, a lot of it's just due to the artifacts of, I, of our bipartisan system, the, part, the primary system, and all the rest of it. Um, but it, sure. it just seems to me, whenever you see a, a big disconnect between public policy, at least, in a, at least in a democratic society, between public policy and popular will, it seems to me like there's been some sort of shortfall in democracy. <laughs> like something has failed, if that's true. But but maybe, but, but, but maybe you don't... I would, I, would say, yeah, I would say, too, that there can also be uh, an issue of... Um, in, in polling as well, like for instance, sure. Uh, you know, some sure one of these policies, policies we'll get into is uh, universal background checks, right? Which which right. poll very well um, historically, uh, you know, in the ninety plus percent, right? Which is a which is a super rare thing for any policy uh, right. to poll that well. Uh, but the question becomes, well, if that's the case, you know, well, why why aren't Republicans? Uh, you know, losing more often for opposing, you know, that policy. Not obviously, not all of them oppose it, but but generally speaking, uh, and even uh, many Democrats oppose. Uh, depending on what the actual proposal is, for instance, the the one that just passed the House last year, HR eight, um, is a type of universal background check bill that uh, extends, the, the goal there is to extend background checks to all transfers of firearms, so not just sales uh, between private parties, but also transfers between them. Um, and then that hasn't gotten a vote in the Senate because the, there, I don't believe there are 50 Democrats who would support it at this point. Um, and so, you, you know, you have to ask why. I mean, you can look at uh, the... Um, Maine referendum. There was a there was a referendum on universal background checks in Maine in 2016. You know, with similar polling back then as well uh, on a national level, and it it failed to pass. And that's a obviously a referendum where it's direct voting by actual voters. So, um, you know, one passed in Nevada uh, to to be somewhat of a counterpoint to it, but it didn't pass 90 percent to 10. Uh, and so I think part of the disconnect there has to do with what people think they're being asked about when it comes to universal background checks, because I think people like background checks as a, as a policy. And, um, 
might not understand how the current system works, which uh, which is basically that we regulate commercial sales of firearms and all commercial sales require uh, a, a federal background check, regardless of how or where the sale is being made. Um, and, and so it's it's actually um, fairly common uh, to hear from gun owners that uh, who think that background checks are required on of sales because that's the only way they've ever actually bought a gun. And it's probably true for most gun owners. Yeah, I, I think it might be worth um, just clarifying a little bit. Um, you know, like I mentioned, the pull request audience tends to be a little bit mixed. So the, you know, for those wondering, like, if you go and buy a gun, like how much, how much of a background check is there? <laughs> right. And yeah. And if, like I said, it, like I, I, speaking of Nevada, I'm here in Nevada. If I were to go to the, to the Cabela's outside of Reno and mm-hmm. go, go and buy a gun, you would have to you would have to pass the federal background check. Um, but that's in some states. I'm not sure what Nevada lies, but in some states, a private sale or transfer of guns, like literally, I meet some guy on Facebook or Craigslist, and he sells me a rifle. Right. That like I literally just give the guy cash. I walk away with the rifle, and there's mm-hmm. no paper trail, and there's no check whatsoever, and you're probably much more versed in the law than I am. Like roughly how many states now is that? Is that true? I think there's, I mean, the vast majority of states don't have universal background checks, if that's what you mean. The, right. the, the situation you described there is, is certainly accurate in terms of uh, how it can work in in, um, in most states, although Nevada does have a, a universal background check law, though there's been some, it's been a lot of controversy over enforcement. I mean, I mean, that's also just a general critique of the concept that it's difficult or impossible to enforce, uh, at least without um, most most gun rights advocates will say without a, a registry of guns, you, you won't be enforced. And so that's one of the reasons people oppose it, because they oppose a registry of guns and they view it as a precursor. But uh, not to get too bogged down in that stuff. Um, just to the basics of how our system currently works for people who don't know uh, federal law requires that all commercial sales of firearms go through a background check. So that's anyone who's buying a gun from a licensed dealer. And uh, you have to be a licensed dealer if you engage in the business of selling firearms uh, so, you know, Cabela's, as, as you mentioned there, Bass Pro or any, you know, Walmart or whomever, your local gun shop, they all need to get a federal license before they can sell firearms. And part of the conditions of that license are that you have to do uh, a federal background check through the Nationalistic Criminal Background Check System that the FBI runs um, in order to make a sale to a customer. But uh, and then I guess so what we don't regulate at the federal level is private sales. So a sale between uh, somebody who is not licensed and somebody else who is not licensed. Right. Uh, So uh, that's where people talk about gun shows and the phrase gun show loophole comes in. It's a little bit misleading because it doesn't really have anything to do with gun shows. If you're buying a gun from a licensed dealer at a gun show, which is a common way to buy guns at a gun show. Uh, you still have to go through the background check. It has it has to do with who's selling the gun, rather than where the sale is happening. Right. Um, right. And I think one one key thing, j- just to explain a little bit, 
I'm going to try to make this a little bit into a gun explainer because I think there's probably a lot of not like not gun experience in our audience. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd say most, but certainly much of American gun regulation is not at the federal level. It's actually at the state level. And so it, what you can or can't buy or how guns are trafficked or not varies a lot state from state to state. And while there are some federal restrictions around some things, what the gun culture or you know market is like in New York is very different than California, is very different than Nevada, and that's purely a function of state law. And so, um, w- which some would argue is a, a major defect because again, you can go to Nevada and which is not far away from California, it's a bordering state, and buy one set of things, and and, and you go to California and it's a totally different set of things. Um, those who are pro-regulation often cite that you know a lot of the guns used in you know, a lot of the crime in Chicago, for example, comes from neighboring states where gun laws are different. And so it, it, if you wanted to actually regulate guns in a serious way, it would almost have to be at a federal level because at a state level, unless states actually did border checks, which, you know, they don't really do, um, any sort of state-level gun law is probably not going to be hugely effective um, if, if that's your goal. I don't yeah, know. That's, a common, that's a common argument that you'll hear from gun control advocates uh, that... Uh, you know, oftentimes it's pointed out that places like Chicago or uh, California will have shootings or, or you know, the, the Buffalo shooting obviously happened in New York, which has very strict gun laws. Uh, and they're, usually their response is that uh, the, the laws need to be federalized because um, that's the only way to right. uh, you know, enforce an assault weapons ban, right? Because people could buy the guns from out of state and bring them in. Although that's not what happened in the Buffalo shooting case. But, but yes, it's a very common uh, argument that's made uh, about, about gun laws um, in the United States and why, you know, a gun control measure in California or, or Chicago might not prevent all of, uh, you know, shootings that happen there. Um, but, you know, of course, uh, I, I would note that um, it is, it, it would be illegal for you to buy a gun out of state uh, that's not legal in your home state and then take it back. But like you know, like you noted there, it's that's another question of enforcement. How do you enforce something like that? Um, and so, yeah, the, the gun control advocates push uh, point to um, nationalizing these laws as as the way to enforce them. Right. And just to illustrate it with a real world example, if I go to, once again to this Cabela's that I'm picking on in Reno, I can go and buy, um, you know, endless capacity AR-15 magazines with no regulation, no background checks relatively cheaply. I take those when I drive across the California border and I've committed a number of felonies, right? So what is a normal trade in one state becomes felonious behavior in another state. And um, a lot of gun owners have been caught up in that because, um, I mean, ignorance of the law doesn't mean you're immune to the law, but they don't know or whatever and they get stopped and, and Mm -hmm. then, you know, enforcement ensues. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, So the complaint goes the other way too, obviously on, on that point. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny. I think maybe what, maybe one way of structuring this conversation, because again, I think we have a mixed crowd, is just to go through. I think are what are like a lot of the low-level talking points in the gun debate that are often, I think, kind of wrong-headed or maybe misleading. Um, so you know, one piece I wrote ages ago. Not, well, it wasn't that long ago. I think it was 2017 or 18. Um, when this whole Cody Wilson ghost gun, 3D printing gun meme kind of emerged. Um, mm-hmm. I got I got so frustrated with that whole conversation because, and I suspect we both got frustrated with it because the whole 3D printed gun thing is kind of a big red herring and it's kind of irrelevant. What what 
Cody was really trying to do, um, and this is almost ancient history now, but at one point this was like a flaming thing, was um, basically the, the short version of it is the way gun technology is gone, and this was the tenor of my piece, guns have kind of, like it or not, they've become kind of Lego-like in their modularity. And that means, again, the famous AR-15 that's being so discussed these days, you can just take it apart with simple tools and rebuild it back. I mean, I'm using the term loosely here, but you get my drift. You can turn it into various forms, or even the, you know, the, new, the new Army sidearm, the SIG Sauer uh, P320, um, is also modular, and you can even change it to a different round if you change the barrel and stuff. And so guns have become these modular things, while before there were, there, there were these very finely integral works of steel and wood, and now they're, they're not that. And so you might ask the question, well, like, like what's the gun then? <laughs> and legally, as, as you know, it's the lower, which is sort of the part that you hold that the serial number is stamped on. That's the official gun. But the rest of it is not actually regulated. And so if, if you were to Google even now AR-15 online, you would find, you know, literally almost every part of the AR-15 except the lower available for sale online in fairly unregulated ways, right? And so whatever policy... Whatever policy solution you come up with has to sort of operate within the technology we have today, which is this is what guns have become, right? They are these kind of very modular pieces that, it, I mean, the closest analogy I can think of is almost open source software, right? And that there's sort of a standard for a lot of these guns and a lot of people build various little modular pieces to it. And you can kind of put together kind of, you know, whatever you want. Um, I, I don't know if you have more comments on that or or if you disagree with my, my diagnosis of the technology. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's actually very relevant to um, uh, the, the conversation. Uh, you've actually seen some, some implications of this just recently in federal court and uh, in one of President Biden's executive actions because, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> you understand that, like, <laughs> people think of the AR-15 as a very modern weapon, it's not really. It's from the 1950s. Um, but uh, regardless, the, you, you're absolutely correct about the modularity aspect, that firearms have become more modular over time, probably in large part because of popularity of the AR-15. And that's something that people really like about that firearm is that you can build it into whatever you want to serve whatever you know, purpose you're trying to uh, use it for in terms of, like, you, know, if you want to do distance shooting, you can build an AR uh, for that, if you want to do close quarters, home defense uh, uh, sort of shooting, you can build a very compact AR for that. You know, there's, there, I mean, we can get into the AR a little more later. I'm sure, sure we will. But uh, you know, the modularity is a big part of it, and you have seen that adopted more and more. The, pick, the Sig P320 is a great example of that as well, which um, was really designed from the bottom up to be very modular and for the parts to be very interchangeable. Um, there's a million different configurations that you can make of that. Um, but, uh, you know, this is uh, sort of uh, not understanding this, this movement in firearm design has been an issue for gun regulation because, um, <laughs> of course, it's been an, it's one of those things where, like, modular guns might be more popular now, but they're not, they're not like, brand new concept. Uh, and our laws have kind of been behind the curve on them for decades, really. Uh, this was something that came to a head in federal court just recently where 
the definition of a receiver, a firearm receiver or frame, which is uh, the part that, as you alluded to, the ATF actually regulates as a firearm. Um, so the part you need to uh, have serialized and get a background check on if you're buying from a commercial dealer, um, that that uh, definition didn't fit the reality of what the AR-15 is because the previous definition talked about, you know, how the, the part in order to be a firearms receiver had to include uh, several different components, including like the breech block and the, the, the fire, the, the trigger mechanism and the AR-15, because it's uh, what's called a split receiver. It doesn't have all those parts in, in one, all those components in one part. So technically, it, it, there is no firearms receiver under the old definition when you're talking about an AR-15. And so for decades, the ATF had kind of just um, uh, designated the lower receiver on an AR-15 as a receiver uh, for, for regulatory purposes. And that is kind of how things went. Everyone went along with that for 60 years until it was like 2016 when some cases started being thrown out based on the fact that the definition of receiver in the law didn't fit the reality of the AR-15's uh, components. And so President Biden, the, the uh, ghost gun uh, executive order that he just put out, actually, uh, while it does talk, focus some somewhat on firearms uh, kits, ghost gun kits. Uh, what it mainly does is fix this definition of uh, receiver, so that basically it just expands the ATF's power to define something as a firearm receiver. Um, but it addressed, that was really the when I was reading through it, that was the main thing they were really get what the ATF really wanted to fix in this um, regulation. You know, the ghost gun stuff got all the political attention. Uh, but what the ATF was trying to do is make sure that their long-standing way that they regulate uh, AR-15s and lots of other guns could actually hold up in court. Right. And in case people might be rolling their eyes or closing their eyes, because <laughs> we're getting a little bit deep into the details, but I, I think what you're mentioning is, is very important. Um, so the, the receiver, just to define some of the terms, is kind of like the heart of the gun where the action kind of happens. Um, yeah, it's a regulated it, part, right? It's a, right, it's a regulated part. And in the case of the AR, it's it's split because you remove one pin and it kind of splits open and there's an yeah. upper and there's there's a lower part, which is how you disassemble the AR-15. And, you know, you might ask, if, if you're being philosophical about all this federal regulation, you might say, okay, well, so the feds consider this magic part of the gun to be the gun, but what defines that as a lower? Like, how, you know, it starts as a right. piece of steel and then eventually gets machined into this thing. At what point does it become a billet of, of aluminum and become an AR-15 lower, then the, the answer they come up with is, oh, when it's 80% there. <laughs> right, um, yeah, that, that's the other half of it is like trying to determine when something goes from an unfinished, unregulated part to a finished, regulated part. That, that's the, the whole essence of the ghost gun part of uh, the regulation. But, but you know, I, was just, uh, I thought you had an interesting point there about, like, the the modernization of firearms and uh, how it how it applies to like uh, you, you can see connections to 
open source coding and, and so forth. Yeah, um, I mean, I thought that was a good idea. Like, this is how the ATF is trying to catch up with a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, Six which is what. Later. Right, right. I mean, this is what Cody Wilson was trying to do. He was trying to make uh, a Second Amendment issue, a First Amendment issue, in right. that he was turning guns into code and therefore they couldn't be regulated because, of course, his personal political philosophy was that we should have no gun regulation. But, um, mm. but in any, any case, as an exercise for the listeners, if you actually go and, go and Google, like, AR-15 package online, you'll, you'll see what seems to be a complete AR-15 you can buy online. It's not quite true. It's probably everything mm-hmm. but a lower that's only been 80% finished, and then you have to finish it. And, and you think this all sounds like a ridiculous law evasion thing. It, it is, to be honest. I mean, that's kind of what it is. But it, it's getting... A, and, and, and again, a lot of this sounds silly, and for those who are, are fuming about gun policy, you're probably thinking, why are we even talking about these details? If you were to actually implement something in law, you would rapidly run up against... And I'm not saying it's an impossible challenge. I'm just saying it is a challenge of how do you define this thing you're trying to regulate, right? So some might cite, for example, the the assault weapons ban of the feds. um, And you're probably much more versed in the details than I am. Well, if if you want to ban assault weapons, the question is, okay, so what's an assault rifle, right? And and forget for the moment, there's kind of a pedantic debate about whether something NAR really is or isn't an assault rifle. I'd rather avoid that debate. Um, And it's just more a question of, well, is it semi-automatic rifles? Is it something with a pistol grip? Is it something with a collapsible stock? There's all these various ways of defining it. And then what ends up happening is that gun manufacturers design guns that just narrowly avoid the definition, but are functionally the same, right? And so again, if you chose to go to the Smith & Wesson website, for example, you'll note that in almost every gun model, they have like the California compliant or the Massachusetts compliant or whatever version of the gun, which looks almost exactly the same, except they've tweaked the design to just narrowly get past the state limitation. And then you realize, man, it's really hard to define what this special class of rifle actually is in practice. Yeah, I mean, that's that's been a long-running running critique of assault weapons bans, is that they well, that they mainly focus on cosmetic features of the, the firearm. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of American gun regulations that, if you examine them closely, uh, certainly don't uh, appear to make a lot of sense at first glance, uh, although they often have at least, uh, you know, reasonable explanations for why they are that way, whether or not you, like, agree they should be that way. And so, uh, Sullivan's Band, for instance, the reason that they focus on cosmetic features, things like pistol grips, telescoping stocks, um, barrel shrouds, threaded barrels, and flash suppressors, um, and the features like that, is because that's that's really what makes the AR-15 visually distinct from most uh, hunting rifles, like what what most people would traditionally consider to be a hunting rifle. Uh, So if you look up something like the, um, the mini 30, right. uh, Which is a semi-automatic belt magazine uh, um, rifle. That's uh, I think the mini 30 is the five, five, six variant, which, which is the same thing as what an AR-15 is, but it looks, it uses a traditional wood stock and it doesn't have a pistol grip. And, you know, so it looks much more like what your average American would consider to be a hunting rifle. And, uh, you know, there's not nearly as much appetite for banning hunting rifles because 
uh, I mean, large in large part, Democrats uh, support certain exceptions for why people should own guns, and hunting is kind of at the top of that list for most uh, Democratic politicians. I mean, even even the president sort of alludes to this when he talks about uh, you know deer with Kevlar vests. Is that's why we don't need assault weapons um, because yeah, his primary focus is on gun ownership for hunting, but. Um, and so, so that's why, like, your AR-15 and your Mini-30 uh, are not really functionally different guns in the ammunition that they use or how they, uh, the action that, that, that they employ. There's, so how do you ban one without banning the other? That, that's kind of how you get to this point of assault weapons bans being largely cosmetics-based. And you can still make an AR-15 that complies with an assault weapons ban, uh, yeah. which is exactly what the Buffalo shooter had bought. Um, now he illegally modified it to be fair to uh, accept detachable magazines, but but uh, you know that, that that's why they're like that. Uh, and I would say just real quick on that, in that same vein, like you, you look at, um, I mean, another issue that's going to come up probably uh, a lot in the wake of these most recent shootings. Uh, is age restrictions on firearms ownership in the United States. We have very different policies um, when it comes to handguns and when it comes to long guns. Uh, so long guns being rifles and, and shotguns. Uh, in America, you can't legally buy a handgun until you turn 21 years old, uh, but you can legally buy a, a rifle or shotgun, including, um, if it's legal in your state, an AR-15. And so people might look at that uh, and say, that's weird. Why do we regulate things that way? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, until you look at, you know, the uh, majority of crime in the United States is committed with handguns. And so for a long period of time, uh, really until the last I don't know, 20 years, most gun control efforts were focused on handguns because those were uh most commonly used in in crime and then frankly still are today but uh, the the thinking has shifted a bit on it but but that's why things are like that right i mean again i'm just going to echo some of the pedantic points that show up in twitter threads not because i necessarily believe them but i think they're worth kind of stating and contextualizing because like so many of these online debates seem to follow a script like i almost had an idea for a blog that would literally be just like every burning issue of the day and the entire script of all the arguments mustered on each side and just walking through why they're either right or wrong so i mean one, one thing a lot of program people mention is like yeah i mean these school shootings get a lot of you know, possibly, I mean, obviously deserved attention, but in terms of just body count, obviously handguns are, are, are just from a statistical point of view, more dangerous. Um, but of course that's a little bit, what about it's like, okay, yeah, maybe so, but still <laughs> rifles are still killing people. So, but, um, and then to, to get, just to wrap up, and I think we'll stop being wonky at that point, because there is a slightly more philosophical or sort of cultural question I wanted to pose to you. Um, you know, you cited the, the, the example of a lot of regulation being around the aesthetics of guns. And I agree with you. I was actually going to cite the example of the Mini 14, which is the, I think, 308 version of the Mini 30 that you quoted, which for people who have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, and I'll probably be dating myself by saying this, but it's the rifle used in the A-Team. Remember the A-Team back in the day in the 80s, right? The, the rifles they had, I think, was the folding stock version of the Mini 14, which still looks a little tactical, but it's, it doesn't look quite like the AR-15. But again, it's just as dangerous from a, or, you know, deadly from a, 
from a from a weapons perspective. Yeah, and, and um, if you dress up a mini a mini thirty or a mini fourteen uh, in more AR style furniture, then it will be caught up in a uh, in, in an assault weapons van. Just like if you dress down an AR fifteen, right, uh, to to match closer to uh, what a mini fourteen or mini thirty looks like, it won't get caught up. Right. Although, and again, but again, the, the, the pro gun regulation argument will just be, well, I don't know. I, look, I don't care. Just get rid of all, any semi-auto rifle with a magazine capacity greater than five rounds, which I, I believe is the policy in Canada. Because I, for, it's a long story, but I had a sailboat on the Canadian border and I was wondering about gun laws. And I, so I read about it briefly. I think Canada's laws are, I, semi-auto might be illegal or it's legal, but only a five magazine, a fine round magazine maximum. And then handguns are heavily regulated. That's well, I know Canada is enacting a, a new confiscation effort, although they've actually had a lot of trouble with this uh, around AR-15s. You know, a lot of a lot of European countries and, and Canada have like a tier system for gun ownership. Like you can own, if you get the licensing, you can own this tier. And if you get the next level of licensing, you can own the next tier. And then over the years, they've kind of shipped away at uh, just ban, outright banning anything. Uh similar to to an AR-15 for and then making it illegal to possess. That's what Canada's working on right now. But, but yeah, I mean, obviously, certainly they, they take a very different approach. Um, and, yeah, you could you could certainly uh, just say, well, why don't let's just ban all semi-automatic rifles or all semi-automatics. Some people do say that. Uh, but, of course, I think the one thing to recognize there is that that's the majority of firearms in the United States. Um now like that what you're talking about is banning most of the guns that would be for sale in a gun store today right and then you're right the the pro-gun counter argument to that again to just use my two different sock puppets here the pro and anti-gun case the the pro case there is like this country has more guns than people how are you going to implement this in reality (coughs) if you actually ban this but at this point i think many people just to just very quickly on that point um, I think people don't really understand the magnitude of, of what that means. I think people get like, oh, it's a big number, more guns than people, but they don't understand the context of it. That that same report, the small arms survey, which is where that, that figure comes from, uh, also looked at military uh, stockpiles of small arms and law enforcement small arms. And uh, there, so there's 400 million civilian owned guns in the United States, right? Far more than anywhere else in the world. I mean, everyone knows this stuff, but I think what most people don't know is that the entire world's militaries combined have a stockpile of about 133 million uh, small arms, which means that American civilians own three times more firearms than the entire world's militaries combined. Uh, And then further to that point, the entire uh, American law enforcement uh, community has about uh, a million guns in their uh, small arms in their uh, arsenal, right? So, uh, you know, American civilians own 400 times the number of guns that the entire country's law enforcement apparatus has. And so even even if you uh, enacted, uh, and even if you just focused on assault weapons, right, AR-15s, the industry, the National Security Sports Foundation um, estimates there's 18 million what they call modern sporting rifles, but, um, you know, that's AR-15s, AK-47, similar type guns. Uh, if 90% of people turned in their guns 
tomorrow, those firearms, you would still end up with uh, more, uh, just about double the number of AR-15s and similar firearms still left in the country than the entire law enforcement apparatus has today. Right. I mean, those are, <laughs> I, thanks for quoting the numbers. I, I wasn't, I, I knew the top level number, but I, I didn't understand the lower level breakdown that you just, <clears throat> that you just enumerated for us. Um, right. So I guess the reason for citing those numbers is to say, even if they were banned, the, the enforcement or confiscation side of things rapidly proves itself difficult. I mean, for, to cite an example in the state of Washington, of which I was a resident until relatively recently, um, they passed an anti-gun law. I forget the exact nature of it, but it, it was somewhat restrictive. And the, the sheriffs, in, 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 for those who don't realize, in rural America, law enforcement mostly comes down to sheriffs in individual counties. Things like state or national police are a lot less present in, in rural America. The sheriffs in these eastern counties of Washington, which tends to be the red part of the state, basically publicly said, we're not enforcing this law. Like, it's just, I mean, if, if the, the governor wants to set send troopers out to Yakima to enforce this law, he's welcome to go ahead and do so. But me, the sheriff's department of whatever county's out there, we're not going to do it. And we're not going to knock on door. We're not going to do any of this stuff. And, you know, that's just one of these kind of rebellions within the federal system that, like it or not, is kind of how the cookie often crumbles policy-wise inside the United States. Yeah. So I, I know we're getting close to time. I've got two more questions for you, Stephen. And again, I'm, I'm glad I actually have such a, an informed uh, interlocutor here on, on the gun issue. You're a, a rare commodity, I have to say, in the debate. So I have two issues. So one question might be, look, so fine, look, you know, re repealing 2A, I think, realistically, is probably never going to happen. Actually banning a lot of these weapons and confiscating the enormous numbers that you just mentioned is probably not realistic either. But, you know, how about, what if, like, you know, you've been on all these gun forums and you've talked to, you know, gun people and, you know, a, a lot of them, they're so pro-training, they're so pro-safety, gun safes, gun locks, all this stuff. Why not take the best practices that everyone talks about all the time and actually just enshrine them in law? Like, yeah, you actually do have to take, um, you know, a fairly serious tactical pistol course before you qualify for a concealed carry permit. For those who aren't familiar, and, I, you know, again, in blue states, this is kind of talking about like an alien civilization, but in a lot of states in the United States, 30-some-odd, almost 40 states, it's relatively easy to get a concealed carry permit. And in some states, in my opinion, it seems kind of too easy to do so. So why not make it such that, yeah, look, we enforce gun safe requirements in homes. We enforce training. Literally everything that the NRA and everyone else says is best practices, we make it obligatory. Would, would that be a crazy gun policy program? For, are, you, are you talking about just for concealed carry licenses or are you talking about um, ownership? Yeah, I know. it's a, it's it's definitely a broad brush that I'm using there, Stephen. Um, I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, both. I guess. I I, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, either one. Yeah. Well, yeah, because because there's going to be different variant, you know, variation in in terms of uh, support for whether it's just to obtain a concealed carry license that you need to get training, you know, mandated by the state, or whether it's to uh, you know own a gun at all. Because, you know, obviously when you're, when you're talking about the base level of, uh, you know, putting restrictions on owning the ownership of firearms, um, you know, th then you're getting into a debate over uh, uh, what, what people view as a rights debate, right? Like the people um, uh, certainly believe uh, there's, there's certainly many people who believe that owning a gun is a constitutional right um, guaranteed by the Second Amendment, of course, and uh, even beyond 
what the Constitution guarantees that it's the fulfillment of a, a natural right of self-defense, because if you deny them the effective means to self-defense, then you're denying the right to self-defense. You know, that's sort of the base level philosophy behind that behind gun ownership in America, or I guess generally like the, the concept of of gun ownership. Uh, and then but when it comes to things like carrying a gun in public, um, you know, there's more uh, of a debate over, you know, what, what's the right policy in terms of allowing people to, uh, to, to carry in public? Should they have to get a license to do that? And should that license include, um, you know, a, a certain amount of training? Uh, and, and look, I, I will say, obviously, there are states like New Jersey, where or Massachusetts, where you or actually, I think Hawaii is the only one that requires uh, basically a license to buy any kind of gun. Um, most of them, again, you get back that dichotomy between handguns and long guns. They're often regulated differently. Um, and so most states, uh, even your deep blue states, will mainly just require it for handgun purchases, you know, licensing, uh, and usually which requires the class. But uh, you know, and I would say that the debate's not really settled there. What you've seen lately is that most red states have moved the opposite direction. They're they're eliminating their licensing requirements altogether for gun carry. Uh, and the argument there is that, uh, I mean, I'm certified to teach the NRA basic pistol course, right? Which which will qualify you for a concealed carry license in. Uh, the vast majority of, of states that have a, a license, right, or that have a, a shall issue license, the, you take the NRA basic pistol course, and that that qualifies as training. And uh, one thing I can tell you is that uh, it's not really a gun carry course. It teaches you about the basics of how to handle and accurately shoot a firearm safely, but it doesn't really teach you anything about concealed carry. Um, uh, you know, like the the laws in your state or, or and so forth. So, uh, you know, the, a lot of the requirements that are out there already, and this, this they can be as little as hunting safety course or even uh, your military orders. Uh, you know, if you're stationed on a base, that that can often qualify you for completing the training requirements for a concealed carry license in most states. But so there's a question of practicality of these sorts of training for the meeting the goal of uh, ensuring people are, are safely carrying their firearms when they're we're getting a license but uh, and on the other hand you have uh, uh, a question about how effective gun carry licensing is in actually having an impact on crime um, because you know you Vermont hasn't had a license requirement for concealed carry ever in its history. Um, and, and now we've been on a decade or more of removing these requirements in most of the country. Now more than it's now 25 states that don't have any licensing requirement. And, um, you know, uh, there's uh, I don't know that there's sufficient evidence to show that that's led to more people who would legally be allowed to carry committing more crimes, I guess is the 
bottom line for the uh, for, you know, for the arguments against the uh, permitting system. Right, and, and what you're referring to there, for those who want to Google it or maybe who follow some of the gun discourse, um, is what's known as constitutional carry, which what it means, yeah. it's, it sounds kind of dramatic, but the idea behind it for those who are proponents of it is that the American Constitution, i.e. the Second Amendment, is all the permission any American citizen needs to carry. And so, um, for example, I think Texas is one of the recent states, I think, that effectively passed it such that you actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but they effectively have constitutional carry. And so, again, just to be absolutely clear what that means, that means that if you're, you know, of sound mind and sound body and a citizen and not a felon, you actually don't need it. And, you know, in other words, you're you're legally enabled to own a firearm, then you're legally able to actually carry it concealed without any sort of yes. training or verification at all. And that that's, and it, that's correct. Right. And, and just to give the state of the world to, to again, I, maybe those who aren't that familiar with <laughs> these corners of the United States, as you're citing, like there's and I want to this is the last issue I want to address with you, Stephen. You know, there's been a general trend in states that are friendly to gun rights that I'm just broadly calling red states to enable those rights more and more. Right. Like like more mm-hmm. more states now have constitutional carry than even 10 years ago. And, you know, I think a lot of people in blue states might think, well, hasn't the trend been towards more restriction over time? Right? It's like, well, no, it's it's been the opposite, actually, in a lot of these states. And it's funny, I still remember <clears throat> I was a high school kid in Florida, which I, I think Florida was the first state to pass or at least certainly one of the first to pass, like whatever the shall issue concealed carry permit law was. Right. And, I re- and I remember at the time, it was kind of controversial. I remember, I think my father like sat the course of the exam and he had me like tag along and sit in on it just to like see what it was like. But I remember it being kind of weird at the time. And it, I, I don't think it passed with a huge, I can't recall what the hell the, the referendum was, but I do recall it being controversial. Um, but then since then, you've had more and more states where, again, we're using the term of art shall issue. And what that means is that the, again, since most gun laws are actually at the state level in the United States, it means that either the local state, if there's a state agency that's regulating it, or in a state like California, the, the county official, the sheriff, actually says, we, well, we, you know, assuming, again, you're like a normal person who passes a background check, we'll give you the permit, right, versus may issue, which is you have to cite a sort of reason for it, versus no issue, which is like, no effing way, it's never happening, it's never happening, right? So there's, there's different... And again, I think that's part of what's so confusing about the gun debate is that there isn't a sort of uniform policy nationwide or necessarily even within the state. Like I said, if you look at, for example, the number of concealed carry permits in California, in counties like San Francisco and L.A., it's basically zero. But in counties further north or east, it's actually like a non-trivial number. And those counties are a lot more like Nevada or Texas than they are like urban California. And so... um, And and I would say, too, that... that you know that that also goes to uh you made this earlier point like there's a lot of variation within states um on things like uh, enforcement of universal background checks or magazine bans uh you can see that in colorado very clearly at least certain parts of colorado will actually enforce their magazine ban uh and you know their limits on how uh, the size of a magazine you can have uh, same for new york um you know so there, there's uh there's variation from the federal level to the state level and then even within states, even when, uh, and actually that's, it's funny because, um, uh, gun control advocates actually kind of want more variation in a certain way. They, 
there, one of the more recent pushes has been to uh, allow cities to enact their own restrictions on things like gun carry, like where you can carry a gun, even if you're licensed. Um, they've done that in Virginia, where I live, and uh, in Colorado as well. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think to, if I was going to like bottom line some uh, this whole debate too, one thing that's important to recognize is that there aren't usually simple solutions to complex issues like uh, whether we're talking about mass shootings, uh, you know, like the, the ones we've just experienced, these horrific mass shootings, or even uh, other types of gun violence, so your more um, common types of, you know, street violence or, or domestic violence or, or murder, like people on each side of this issue will often try to present it as though there's just a simple fix. We just flip the switch if we just pass an assaultants ban or uh, if we just pass universal background checks or if we arm teachers or have armed security at every school uh, that, you know, that's going to solve every problem. Uh, and I just don't think that that's actually reality. You know, these policies have mixed um, effectiveness and they, they all have their own trade-offs. Um, and I, you know, it's, my my goal is to try and help people understand those trade-offs and those uh, drawbacks and and positives for these policies and and you know let people make up their own their own mind on it. Quick question: I, I do have one big follow-up question. I definitely want to get to. But you were mentioning the various levers that one could potentially pull. One that's been floated recently that David French has been going on among others, has been going on about a lot today on Twitter, is the so-called red flag laws. And for those who aren't familiar, um, this is the idea, and I think it's been implemented slightly differently in different states, but this is the idea that someone in a position of authority, a police officer, family, teachers, etc., can basically undergo like an actual like juridical process. Like there's a judge in the loop making sure this doesn't get out of hand, but basically saying this person is not of sound mind and should not have the ability to own or buy guns. And <clears throat> for example, in the case of this week's tragedy, the person was obviously out of their minds. And like, and I was just reading the Washington Post kind of biography on the person. The person had so many red flags going on left and right about their own life. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about that as a potential measure going forward? Yeah, certainly uh, red flag laws have gotten a lot of uh, attention since Parkland as a potential solution for uh, mass shootings, although they are usually employed for uh, in cases of uh, su uh, suicidal ideation more more than mass shootings, because that's obviously much uh, a much more common event. Um, and actually, suicides make up uh, two thirds of, of American gun deaths every year, just so people uh, have a better understanding of, the, of of that when you when you hear people talk about gun deaths. But um, but yeah, so red flag laws have been adopted, I believe in. 19 states now and the district of columbia uh, and um certainly you can uh, one of the common things i think people notice about these mass shootings is that there were warning signs or red flags that showed up before they happened and if somebody had either had the ability to do something about them you know via a red flag order uh, that might not have existed in the state at the time but or if they had actually followed through 
on the red flags. Uh, you know, some of the ones in the the Texas shooters case are, uh, you know, he's cutting himself and he was fighting with his getting kicked out of his mother's apartment. You know, how whether those would have risen to the evidence standard necessary for a red flag order is obviously up for question. I think the Buffalo shooter is a more obvious case because he was taken for evaluation after making uh, threats of uh, killing people. But um, unfortunately, the, you know, even that is not going to be a panacea either because, you know, obviously it, it was available in New York and wasn't used. Um, and then, of course, there are significant um, due process questions with with when it comes to red flags. Uh, people have issues with uh, the level of evidence needed to take away someone's uh, constitutional right to own firearms. Uh, yeah, I, I tend to believe that there there's more potential for something to be worked out uh, to address those concerns while also implementing that that process. Uh, then, with some of these other proposals, like you know, total bans on certain classes of firearms or something along those lines, Americans tend to be more uh, open to behavior-based restrictions on on firearm ownership than they are to uh, you know, just general bans of guns for everybody. Uh, so that's probably more potential there. Um, but again, you know, it's not a, it's not a one size fits all problem. Red flag laws, if you had them in every state or we had a federal one, uh, I'm, I wouldn't fix everything, but they could, you know, certainly you could see how they would, would have, uh, uh, you know, uh, could at least make it harder for some of these shooters to get their firearms uh, and i just talked to david french about this at length on, on my podcast uh, the weekly reload podcast if you want to hear more about it uh, okay i definitely recommend that because it's i think david french has written about this for a while so it's definitely a voice to listen to okay my, my last philosophical question i know we're kind of bumping up on time but what one thing i find kind of strange and i just posted this piece by um a novelist named david joy who i think lives in north carolina i don't know if you've ever seen this piece it was in um it ran after the Parkland shooting in the New York Times in uh, 2018. And it's a comment kind of on American gun culture more broadly. And uh, David Joy, you know, was someone raised in the South, in a rural community, you know, very, very much part of the American gun culture. And one thing he cites is how the gun culture in the United States has shifted away from, or even, you know, looking at an organization like the NRA, one that was focused on sportsmanship and hunting and the sort of tradition and a sort of handing down from parents to children, a certain responsibility, and maybe like a sporting thing you did at a summer camp. <clears throat> and somehow American gun culture became all tactical and militaristic. And, you know, like, I, you know, I, I was raised, you know, sort of in, the, in Miami, kind of in the South, and definitely kind of a gun culture of its own at the time. But, you know, I can't think of anyone even owning an AR-15 or anything resembling. I mean, they, they were probably legal at the time, but just nobody owned any... It wasn't even part of the conversation. Like my father had some, you know, an Ithaca Model 37, you know, wood, you know, wood trim shotgun with his initials monogrammed in it sort of thing that would look nice on a mantelpiece, but was hardly what anyone would think of as like a military weapon. Or I had my little Radley bolt action, little 22, you know, Winchester rifle or something. But that, that's a whole different world than the sort of tactical world of all these black guns that you see. And 
you know, certainly if you dip into like the gun forums and a lot of the culture, like so much of it is around personal defense and again, tactical this and that. And it's just odd. I, I think I was looking at, I think Pew had a study. I was trying to look at views of guns, why Americans own guns and personal defense at some point in like the nineties or the aughts started changing as like one of the main reasons why people own guns. Um, <clears throat> And again, in this reflection by David Joy, I'll try to share a link of it later. Um, you know, he's of two minds about it. He's he himself is a concealed carry permit holder and concealed carries and all that stuff. And yet, he's also a hunter, and he feels kind of torn between these two worlds. And um, anyway, I'm just I'm curious if you have any comment on that, or if it's a trend that you've observed, or uh, yeah, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting uh, cultural shift. Uh, that there's probably a number of factors for, uh, you know, there's, uh, I mean, uh, honestly, the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan created a lot of veterans who were um, trained on the, the AR-15 platform uh, or, you know, a similar platform. Uh, there's obviously the, some differences between the civilian AR-15 and, and the military's M4, but uh, mainly automatic fire being the main difference. But, but you know, you know, it's something that's familiar that they were, accustomed to using uh and then there's just sort of a military admiration that uh plays into it it's i don't know how new that is obviously i think americans have been um uh, have admired the military for a long time and it's probably uh the, you know i see a lot of parallels between the ar-15's popularity and the 1911's popularity the 1911 being a uh, uh the old army sidearm for 60 years or more, you know, during World War II and World War One, it was the the handgun that uh, was issued to to soldiers, um, and it remains extremely popular to this day. Probably for similar reasons that the AR-15 is has grown in popularity. I'm sure there's also uh, the fact that they were banned for 10 years probably plays into it. Um, you know, there's a lot of Americans who don't like. Uh, being told what they aren't allowed to have, right? I'm sure that plays that's part of the the reason. Um, they are, of course, good firearms. Uh, you know, they have a lot of uh, uh, a lot of reasons why people would want to own them. Uh, they're very f- functional firearms. Uh, they're light. They have limited amount of recoil, so they're they're you know uh, easier to shoot accurately with. Um, especially if you're smaller, or, you know, you have a smaller build, like, or you're a woman, or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it's an interesting thing to uh, to look at and try to figure out, like, well, what what was it that that drove the popularity of the AR? And I think it was probably a number of things. Well, so I mean, one thing you're putting your finger on, which again, I think non-gun people maybe don't realize, is that there's this whole like military surplus culture of guns, right? Like the military, our military explodes to deal with some military threat or another, and then when it kind of downsizes or just part of the natural churn of the hardware, it tends to sell the surplus arms into the civilian population, right? So like right this second, I'm staring at no shit a World War II era M1 Garand that's on my mantelpiece sold to me by the civilian marksmanship program, which is something that most people don't even realize exists, but it's yep. a, it's a federal agency that will sell you old surplus stuff. And, um, <clears throat> there's kind of a story behind this. You might find it amusing. I think I was momentarily interested because obviously it's kind of a piece of history. And so I think I, 
it's this really bureaucratic process. You send a bunch of paperwork and like a paper check and you kind of forget about it. And in my case, they, and it was probably illegal. They, they just mailed me the rifle in California, which to me was, oh. and, and yeah. And at the time I had a PO box. And so like, I went to the post office in downtown San Francisco and like, oh, we have a special package for him. I'm like, okay, I don't know. What are you talking about? This was like months later. I'd forgotten about it already. And they hand me this long box and then there's like an M1 Garand inside. And I'm like walking home on the street. <laughs> like, man, this, this just feels really weird. Anyhow, so the, the, the point is that the U.S. government sells its surplus weapons. So I think part of the point you're making is that historically it's been the case that whatever the American service rifle was at the time, it kind of went into the civilian culture via the surplus mechanism because, as you said, a lot of servicemen were trained on it. It's cheap to own and shoot. Typically, the ammo that it cycles becomes kind of a industry standard, and so it naturally becomes a thing. But I, I think, again, just to double down on the point a little bit, I think it's a little bit it's different, right? Like, again, my father, I think, after the Korean War, he bought, like, an M1 carbine, which is this kind of classic small carbine thing that was issued a lot and then taken out of service. And he owned it for a while as, like, a little plinker, and then I'm sure he sold it or gave it away or whatever. But, again, that's very different than if you walk into, like, the main gun store in Reno, it looks like the armory of, like, the Navy SEAL base or whatnot that I've been there or what would be, like, a special forces unit in some international military, and it's just like a civilian gun market. And you have to ask the question, how did it come to this? Because if you had walked into that same store 30 or 40 years ago, that's not what would have been presented to you, even though, as you said, AR pattern rifles were the service weapon of the military at the time. So I, to yeah, me, it seems I mean, like, I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I do think that with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the global war on terror, right, special forces became a much more prevalent uh, um, section of the military in the American consciousness, right? That became a much, uh, very much a glamorized, um, uh, you know, admired part of the military. And so everybody wanted to, to be like them. Um, and I think that probably plays into a lot to, um, this whole, uh, phenomenon you're talking about here. Like people, you know, there, there's other factors, like I just mentioned, of, uh, you know, a lot of veterans were trained on this platform and like it, and and there's a lot of av av uh, advantages to using it. But but yeah, why why does uh, Reno's gun store look like it's uh, an armory for the SEALs? Probably because a lot of people look up to the Navy SEALs and want right. to be like them. Right, but it's it's kind of larpy. I mean, it's it's toys that are not toys. They're super sure. dangerous. They can murder you know dozens of people at a throw. It's it this is this isn't just like a hobby, like being into motorcycles or something, right? There's like an actual social impact to this weird fetishism, and and again, like you go to these forums in which they talk about tactical this or that or whatever that YouTube star is who's constantly talking about tactical gun this and that. It's like. You know, like sometimes I want to ask, like, do you think you live in like Somalia or like the Ukrainian front lines now? Or do you want to live in that? Because I, I can guarantee you, having brushed up slightly against some of those parts of the world, you don't actually want to live in that world, right? Like right. <laughs> one of the blessings of liberty, so to speak, of living in the U.S. is that I can walk out the door and not think about having to arm myself like an infantryman just to safely walk the streets, right? So, again, I just I don't <laughs> I, I'm kind of, again, like the author of that New York Times piece. And on the one hand, I can sort of see both sides. But I think one part of the gun culture has gone kind of completely crazy. Um, some of it is just like boys and their toys or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, uh, yeah, the tactical stuff is a real phenomenon, right? It certainly is uh, in terms of people wanting to emulate 
who they ad- admire in the in the military world, um, and so that can play out. And and it can get you can it can take people to you know extremes. Uh, you know the Boogaloo Boys uh, stuff started off as like a, a you know a meme on the in the in gun culture, and then grew into something where people uh, began killing police. You know. Uh, not now, certainly not everyone who posted a Bogolo meme uh, is a is a cop killing psychopath, right? Um, but uh, there are certainly uh, pitfalls to uh, that kind of uh, um, uh, you know a- admiration for you know war, basically, right? Like the gamification of war by people who. And I've never been in war. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what it's actually like. And I think a lot of people see what they, uh, you know, on what's on CNN or in a movie, and they look up to the, you know, these special forces guys, and they want to be like them. Um, and they, and that can lead to, uh, you know, this disassociation from the realities of war and what it's actually like to put your life on the line and and. So you get things like civil war talk, and you know, like a desire to fight it out with, with uh, uh, you know, other Americans over, over these issues. Uh, instead of, you know, uh, you can you can see people switch from like, well, I wouldn't, I would resist a tyrannical, uh, you know, oppression, a gun confiscation effort to like wanting to fight a, a, a civil war. Uh, and certainly that's not healthy, but it's also, uh, you know, how just because somebody buys a, a $2,000 AR with, uh, you know, a, an ACOG on it doesn't mean that they're a threat to society, right? Uh, well, I mean, sure. No, I mean, statistically, right. I mean, the vast majority of weapons are used in such crimes, but again, you know, Talking to the the mother of my child that in reacting to this week's tragedy, it's like I, I, it's you know this is a hobby that's too exp- whose societal cost is too expensive to indulge, right? Um, from her point of view, and uh, you know I, there's definitely something to that argument. Um, and and again, just leaving aside the gun policy debate, it just sometimes you wait into these forum things that it's just like, man, like why? It's just it seems like such a weird fetishizing of what is a pathological state that, again, most societies would recoil from and aw- avoid if they could, right? Because if you've actually seen civil war close-up or work close-up, it's not something that you would fetishize or yeah. consider to be part of a hobby. I mean, here in America, for the average civilian, war is a very distant thing. Um, and uh, in some ways is glorified uh, you know, the way that we because we were founded in an armed revolution uh, and we look up to that time period and I'm sure some people you know, long for that sort of glory that can come with those, with, uh, you know, great struggles like that, right? And so not understanding what war is really like uh, can start to, you know, admire it, which is, which is, yeah, it's gross. Okay, we'll, we'll stop at that, Stephen. I'll, I'll, I'll get off my pulpit. Um, thank you for, for the conversation. Um, I've already taken too much of your time, so I'm not going to propose doing a Q&A with some of our guests, although sometimes we do that. Um, but thanks again for the conversation. Um, anything else you, you wanted to add before before we wrap up, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, 
I really appreciate you having me on and having like a, you know, a, a, a honest frank conversation. Um, you know, I try, <laughs> I try not to do too much of my own opinion because I mainly focus on, on reporting, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's good to have a, an open conversation, uh, with people with different, uh, viewpoints. So I, you know, what, not that we're like wildly apart, but, but, uh, I do appreciate it. And, and look, you know, like I said, I don't think, uh, I, I don't think, um, even that, uh, extreme part of gun culture is reflective of most, uh, even, even close to the a majority of gun owners in, in the country. And, uh, same, same goes for these, uh, horrific shootings that we've experienced. You know, the, a lot of Americans own guns. Most of them, the vast majority of them, uh, are peaceful, uh, law abiding people who, um, you know, want to protect themselves and others. Uh, and, and so I think it's important to keep that in mind as we also do our best to try and, and prevent horrible acts like, like this in, in the future. Yeah. I mean, again, like I said, if at least if the polls are to be believed, a lot of our existing policy in either direction isn't necessarily deeply reflective of, 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 you know, popular will overall. Um, which to me, again, is upsetting, whether it be gun control or abortion or anything else. Um, our claim to actually being democratic, where the government actually, in some sense, comes to embody or converges on popular sentiment, doesn't somehow that feedback loop doesn't seem to be working in our country. But that's a, that's a separate, much bigger issue, Stephen. <laughs> um, okay, uh, well, great. Thanks, Steve. And like everybody else, you know, if, you've, if you're a regular, if you're a regular listener, um, I'll edit this and post it briefly, and there'll be a shareable link, and it'll also be where all fine podcasts are sold, Apple and all the rest, when it gets streamed out. Uh, thanks again, Stephen. This was a last-minute request that I just randomly DM'd you. Thank you for indulging uh, my last-minute thing. I think it's been, a, it's been a great conversation. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having okay. me. Okay. See you, Stephen. Bye.